There are some truly awful sins that are practiced in this world. And we come across a man this morning named Matthew, and he's a tax collector, and it seems like the Pharisees despise Matthew, the tax collector. Seems like the Pharisees despise all of these people that Jesus is having dinner with on this day, tax collectors and sinners. Why are they so upset that Jesus is going to have dinner with tax collectors and sinners? In our day, as in days of, the days of uh, history, one of the worst, most heinous, most wicked, most awful sins is that of betrayal, that of treason, that of disloyalty. Treason and betrayal constitute some of the most heinous crimes on both national level and personal levels. And you, if you've ever experienced somebody's betrayal, if you've ever experienced treachery from the hands of someone that you trust, you know the response of pain that rises up in you. You know the anger that naturally kindles in you when you are betrayed. And human history is filled with accounts and records of traitors to their own families, traitors to their own friends, their people, their country. History is littered with stories of individuals who, motivated by greed, motivated by reward and self-advancement, double-crossed, sold out, and wickedly betrayed their fellow countrymen. And as a result, these people become then the most hated, the most despised people among those whom they acted against. They become the dregs of society. There is a special kind of hatred, right? A deep, flaming intensity to the hatred that is inspired by someone who comes and kisses us on the cheek like Judas while leading soldiers behind him to arrest and there's a number of examples, but if I like to go back to the old Greek empire. Way back, there is a couple of examples in the Greek empire of hatred inspired by and directed at turncoats and traitors. Two men come to mind, a man named Hippias and a man named Ephialtes. Hippias and Ephialtes. Hippias was a despotic ruler in Athens. And over time, the Greeks decided against despots and moved in the direction of democracy. And so they deposed Hippias from the rule in Athens in favor of a more democratic form of government. But Hippias did not take this lightly, and he wanted his seat of power back. And so he went to the councils in Greece and said, I want my, I want my throne back. And the, Greece, the, the Greek, Greek councils said, no. They preferred the democratic form of government. So what did Hippias do? He left Greece and sailed to Persia, where there he cozied up to King Darius I. And he encouraged Darius, Hey, Darius, 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 I got a plan for you. Why don't you take the entire Persian army, sail it over to Athens, attack Athens, conquer it, take it over, and then put me back on the throne as king in Athens? 
Interesting side note, this Darius I is the same king that we read of in the book of Ezra. This is the same king that helped the Israelites rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And at the same time Darius was helping the Jews, he was being uh, spoken to by Hippias, who was advocating for Persian attacks on Athens. Now, when you see this idea of Persians attacking Athens, this is Hippias counseling the Persians to attack his very own people, his very own mother, brothers, sisters, countrymen. Hippias urged Darius to take control of Athens and rule over the Greek people. That's a humongous betrayal. And Darius agreed. And with Hippias leading the charge, or leading the massive Persian fleet across the sea, Hippias led the Persian fleet to a beach where he knew that the large Persian cavalry could safely get off the boats and begin their charge. And that place was called Marathon. And it was this battle at Marathon... This was the first attempt by the Persians to conquer Greece. There would be a number of, more, a number of battles that would uh, call, call, come in the future, but this was the first one. And a much smaller Greek force fought against a much larger Persian force, and eventually the Greek army, the smaller Greek army, defeated, crushed the larger Persian army, and this set the tone for a, a multitude of battles that they would have in the future. Had Hippias succeeded in his plans, had the Persian army defeated and conquered and overthrown the democratic Greek nation, the entirety of our history would be different today. This was one of the most important battles in world history. And after the Greeks won this battle, they despised Hippias. They hated Hippias with a savage intensity for his betrayal. How many people died because of his betrayal? How many great warriors died because of his betrayal? And his treason. And so they, the Greeks set a bounty on not just the head of Hippias, but also his children, all of his children. This is how badly they hated this man. And it is said that he died while being transported back by the defeated Persian armies to Persia. And in Athens, his name became a byword, it became a swear word, it became a curse, a curse word synonymous with treachery and betrayal against one's own people. Can you feel a little bit why a peoples would despise such a man? Along with Hippias, we also read of another man named Ephialtes. Ephialtes was the Greek shepherd who betrayed the Spartan army defending Greece at the Battle of Thermopylae. In 480 BC, the Persians once again, with an army numbering up to and perhaps even exceeding a million men, set its sights on conquering the Greeks. And the much smaller Spartan army, depending on which movies you watch and which sources you go to, numbered or ranged anywhere from 300 to 3,000 soldiers. A million versus 3,000. And they situated, the Spartan army situated itself at a, between two narrow mountains, uh, a narrow mountain pass called the Hot Gates, if the Persians wanted to reach the Greek population, the Greek civilian population, they would have to get through this, Persian, or this uh, Spartan army situated between these two mountains. And the small Spartan army fought furiously and held off the Persian forces for two full days until Ephialtes, the shepherd, 
tempted by Persian wealth and Persian riches, set out of his own selfish accord to visit the Persian king Xerxes to betray his own people. And he revealed the location of a small hidden path in the backs of the mountains by which the Persian soldiers could come through and surround the Spartan army. And the Persians utilized this betrayal by Ephialtes to their advantage as they encircled the, the, the Spartan army and they killed every single last one of them. The traitorous and treasonous actions of Ephialtes led to the death of many Spartan heroes, fathers, and brothers. And the Greek peoples utterly despised this man as a result. He was so hated by his people that a bounty was placed on his head after he had fled from his own lands. And in 470 BC, 10 years later, a man named Athenates, not even recognizing that this was Ephialtes he was in an argument with, murdered Ephialtes for a completely unrelated offense. And rather than being charged with murder, Athenates was hailed as a hero. Rather than being brought to the courts and brought before a judge or arrested for his deed, he was rewarded with a bounty. Can you imagine being so hated by your people that if somebody murders you, they celebrate and they cheer and the reason for the murder doesn't matter and the murderer doesn't go to prison, but the murderer is hailed as a hero. And like Hippias, the name Ephialtes soon became synonymous in Greece with betrayal and treason as well. Now, these are just a couple of accounts of betrayal from a long time ago, and there are many, many, many more. And for each individual or each group that is betrayed, there does exist a special sort of hatred for the betrayer. A heated anger harbored in the hearts against those traitors. And in this, this morning's text, we are introduced to a much maligned, tremendously despised turncoat among the Jewish peoples. A man named Matthew, a member of the loathed and deplorable tax collector class in Judea. A man who would inspire the same feelings in the Jews, in the religious leaders, in the Pharisees that Hippias and Ephialtes inspired among the Greeks. And how does Jesus relate to such a man? How will Jesus speak to such a traitor? How will Jesus respond to a man that is so hated by his culture, his society, and his people? As we explore this interaction between Jesus, Matthew, and the Pharisees, Jesus will clearly define his mission. He will clearly define the reason he came to earth, the reason he took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that reason is he came to call sinners to himself. And this call of sinners to himself includes all sinners. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus proves on this day as he called to himself Matthew, one that society considered exceedingly repulsive, exceedingly dirty, disgusting, vile, and vulgar. Jesus, in calling Matthew to himself, proved the vast expanse of his mercy and his grace. And if you are a sinner who recognizes that fact, that you are indeed a sinner... If you are spiritually sick and you recognize that fact that you are spiritually sick, 
Jesus can, Jesus will save you. Jesus can and he will and does forgive you of your sins provided you truly call out to him in faith. And so this account of Matthew's, Matthew the traitor's call begins in chapter 9, verse 9. Look at it. As Jesus passed on from there. As Jesus passed on from there. Passed on from where? This is the next stage in Jesus' ministry as he moved on from Capernaum. You remember, in Capernaum, in the previous section of text, Jesus had forgiven the sins of the paralytic man. Remember the paralytic man? All of his friends lowered him through the roof of the, of the house and set him before Jesus. And Jesus said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And when the religious leaders heard that, they started to grumble. They thought Jesus was blaspheming. And they said, Who is this who is blaspheming? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And knowing their evil thoughts, Jesus went on to confirm his authority to forgive sins by healing the paralytic of his ailment, saying in verse 6 of chapter 9, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man rose, picked up his bed, and went home. So now Matthew has revealed to us that Jesus possesses authority on earth to forgive sins. And now the question that would arise after realizing that is, well, who exactly can or will Jesus forgive? He possesses the authority to forgive, but are there levels of sinners? If, if you've reached some height of sinfulness, will Jesus refuse to forgive? Will he forgive a man like Matthew? Can he forgive someone like me? I mean, I've heard people say it over and over and over again, and perhaps you have as well, right? Maybe you've engaged in conversations with people, and they will say something like, Jesus cannot forgive someone like me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the things that I've thought. You don't know. And I've also heard people say things like, I can't go to church, you know. I mean, if I ever walked into the church building or ever started to pray, I'd probably catch on fire. You ever hear people saying stuff like that? But the calling of Matthew displays, the calling of Matthew here reveals that Jesus forgives any and all who come to him in faith, any and all who believe in him, even the most treacherous of sinners, even the most wicked of sinners, even the most traitorous of sinners, the calling of Matthew to discipleship, to following Jesus in a close relationship reveals to us the expanse and the depth and the wonder of Christ's forgiveness. All of your past deeds, no matter what they are, all of your failures, no matter how depraved, no matter how wicked, no matter how awful or evil, all of them will be forgiven of those who truly repent of their sin and turn to Christ. And Matthew, recounting this day as Jesus walks on the road and, 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 and engages with him, Matthew tells his own story. Right, Matthew this Matthew that is sitting at the tax booth here is the one who goes on to write the gospel of Matthew. And he's telling his own story. He's, in essence, he's saying, you know, when Jesus came to call sinners, guess what? When Jesus came to search for the sick, guess what? He found me. He called me a most terribly sick sinner. And Matthew's story, guess what? It's not just Matthew's story. It's your story. 
If you are saved here this morning by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, do you know why? It's because Jesus came to call the sick and the sinner to himself, and you responded to his grace. So we begin Matthew's story in verse 9. Look at it again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, I've referred to Matthew a few times already as a wicked sinner, as a traitor in the eyes of his own people, but I haven't yet told you why. Why was Matthew considered such a filthy, rotten, traitorous, treacherous sinner? Well, look at the text. Where is Matthew sitting when Jesus calls him? He's sitting at the tax booth. Now, that might not seem like a big deal on first glance. However, Matthew's occupation as a tax collector in this day meant that he had turned his back on his fellow Israelites. He had turned his back on his people in favor of increasing his own wealth and his own riches and working for the Romans. In the eyes of his fellow countrymen, Matthew had stabbed them all in the back in order to collaborate with their hated Roman overlords. You see, in the first century, the Jewish peoples found themselves a conquered and subjected people. They were under Roman rule. They were under Roman occupation. And the nation pined for and longed for the day when Messiah would appear and lead them in a charge of freedom against this Roman overlord. They pined for the day when Roman rule would be thrown off and their kingdom would be established once again in the same way that they had lived under King David and King Solomon. If you go back and you read Kings, you see that in those days they were so prosperous that silver was like dust and rocks on the street. There was so much. On all sides of the nation, there was peace on every single one of their borders. Kings and queens from other nations came to the the kings of, of Israel, admiring them and seeking after their wisdom. This is the eagerly, this was the eagerly anticipated hope held by the majority of Israelites in this day. Now think about it. If the heart's cry of the average Jew is freedom and liberty from Roman oppression, one, of a, one might understand then the hatred that these same Israelites might possess when one decides to collaborate with the Romans rather than against them. You might understand the hatred that is inspired when a fellow Jew decides to go with Rome against their Jewish countrymen. Those who, instead of praying for and eagerly awaiting the arrival of Messiah, accepted lucrative posts in the empire for Romans in Judea. See, the Romans tended to recruit tax collectors from defeated foes to collect taxes from those foes. And you could imagine, right, the Romans coming in and saying, all right, we need some tax collectors to to collect the taxes from the Jews. And most of the Jews would turn their back and say, nope, I'm not going to do that, but not Matthew. Matthew puts his hand up and he's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. And you could imagine the daggers and the stares of all of the angry Jews looking at Matthew and growing so angry with him in their hearts. And so Matthew begins to collect and accumulate riches and prosperity as other Jews pine away and long for freedom. 
The Jews hated and despised those among them who collected taxes for Rome because those taxes were an ever-present, ever-painful reminder of their existence as a subjected people. And so they watched these Jewish turncoats take Jewish labors, Jewish crops, Jewish finances, and send them to Rome to increase the wealth and increase the lifestyle of idolaters and pagans who lived off in the distant capital. The Jews hated and despised those among them who collected taxes for Rome because those very same taxes and levies that were extracted from them were used to support the Roman military that kept them in subjection. And the Jews hated and despised those among them who collected taxes for Rome because those same tax collectors came to embody dishonesty. As they grew their own wealth by overcharging and impoverishing their fellow Jews. If Rome, for example, called for a 20% tax on cabbage, the tax collector would collect 40, pocket the, 20, the extra 20 for himself, and send off the rest to Rome. And if they so chose, these tax collectors could set up booths at busy intersections and roads and highways to stop fellow Jews who had been transporting their goods to demand a portion of those goods as a tax. Philo, the Jewish philosopher, speaking of one particular Jewish collector of revenues for Rome, spoke of him as having amassed for himself enormous riches of every imaginable description by plundering and extorting his own people. These tax collectors made it their regular practice to defraud their people for personal gain. And this is why when John the Baptist was doing his baptism, baptizing ministry in Luke 3, a number of people come and they say, what should we do? How should we repent? What does it mean for us to repent? How do we turn our lives around in response to your message? And there was a number of tax collectors who came to him and said, asked that very question. And John said to them in Luke 3.13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And so the result of this treachery by tax-collecting collaborators in Judea, the religious leaders, was that the religious leaders pronounced them unclean. You are unclean because of your dishonesty. You are unclean because of all the Gentiles and the sinners that you frequent with. And to be pronounced unclean, in effect, meant that tax collectors were barred from worship at the synagogues and worship at the temple. They were barred from fellowship with the larger community of Jews. And the term tax collector came to be used by the Pharisees and the religious leaders as an insult, as an abusive term, as a term of derision. And they tended not to use that word on its own. It wasn't simply, oh, look at that tax collector. No, they always tended to couple it with another word in order to lodge in the people's minds what sort of of level you should see tax collectors on. So you would always see it. As we're working through, you'll see it's always tax collectors and sinners or tax collectors and prostitutes solidifying in the minds of the people their unclean status, their unwelcome status among Israel's Israelites. So knowing all of that, what do you expect? What do you think the crowds are expecting Jesus to do as he moves ever closer to this tax collector sitting on the road, sitting at the road this day? How great a surprise is it then when Jesus leaves Capernaum and sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth, he calls Matthew to himself. He says, Matthew, follow me. 
Matthew was sitting there that day taking advantage of his fellow Jews. He was sitting there that day extorting and betraying his own people. And Jesus walked up to him and he called this man, one of, the, one of society's worst sinners, to be one of his closest followers. Now just as a side note, it's quite amazing the unity that Jesus brings to people who truly love him. I mean, Matthew is a Roman collaborator, but do you, when you, we get to the list of disciples later on in the book of Matthew, I think it's Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and following, you see another name in there in verse 4, Simon the Zealot. Now, if you think about the political spectrum here, the Zealots were hyper-Jewish nationalists who would go around stabbing Roman soldiers in the middle of the streets and then running away. And then you've got Matthew, who is a Roman collaborator. These two guys could not be further apart from each other in their political viewpoints. But under the banner of Jesus Christ, both of them are brought together by him and in him, and both of them go on mission together, proclaiming the love and the, uh, and, and the, and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We could learn a lot these days from Matthew and Simon the Zealot. You can learn a lot about the unity that Jesus inspired in these two seeming enemies brought together in love. But back to Matthew. Jesus walks up to Matthew and he initiates a communication between himself and Matthew. You see that, right? Jesus pursued Matthew. See, the crowds are following Jesus around and they're perhaps now, as they're following him, expecting him to speak to Matthew with condemning tones, as so many other religious leaders had. However, Jesus doesn't follow the, the, the same patterns as the religious leaders that the crowds are used to seeing. No, Jesus actually does something quite stunning and he surprises the crowds again by summoning Matthew to follow him. Follow me, Jesus said to Matthew. Matthew, leave behind all of this. Leave this post. Leave this position. Leave all of this opportunity for profit and for riches. Leave it all behind to follow me, Matthew. Be my disciple, Matthew. This is no half-hearted decision. This is not a call to casual, quasi-committed discipleship. This will cost Matthew everything. You see, unlike Peter, Andrew, James, and John... When they gave up their fishing trade to follow Jesus, when Jesus died, they went back to their fishing trade. After Jesus was resurrected, after he was raised from the dead, he went and he saw them fishing. But for Matthew, if Matthew gives up his position as a tax collector here and now, that meant that any one of the hundred people waiting in the wings for that position would immediately step in and Matthew is out. This is... What Jesus called Matthew to when he said, follow me, leave this behind, learn from me, obey me. This is not simply a call for Matthew alone, but this is the call of Jesus to all people at all times, in all places. Follow me. And Matthew heard the call, and for whatever reason, the text doesn't tell us exactly why, but for whatever reason, Matthew rose and followed him, the text says. Luke actually says in 528, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew left his post as a tax collector and became a disciple of Jesus, committing himself to learning from and obeying him. 
And he chose this life with Jesus over the most profitable and lucrative of jobs. Matthew, and I want you to notice how Matthew responds. Matthew didn't groan, he didn't mumble, he didn't complain about his decision to leave that behind and follow Jesus. No, look what he did instead in verse 10. He threw a feast and he invited all of his tax collector and sinner friends to come and meet the man who had done so much for him. He wanted them all to meet the man who had shown him such compassion. The man who was so radically and wildly different from every religious leader that they had ever encountered up to that point. Look at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, we don't see it clearly there. Luke makes it more clear that this is Matthew's party. Luke says, and Levi, that's Matthew, made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Imagine that, right? You've got this holy man, this religious leader, sitting in a house, reclining and eating with the dregs of society, with the despised of society. This dinner party must have come as a shock to the, to the religious elite of the day. You see, the Pharisees had created this rather strict set of rules and standards. They crafted a complicated and intricate system of extra-biblical rules to follow, and they used that system, their self-defined system, to determine who's in and who's out. Who's worthy of our time? Who's worthy of our effort? Who should we associate with and who should we avoid? Well, let's judge everybody according to the standards that we have made for ourselves. And the average Jew was unable to live up to those standards. And you know what? Even the Pharisees were unable to live up to them. They just lied about it. Nobody was able to live up to this handcrafted, hand-carved standard of righteousness that had been created by the Pharisees and the scribes. But the Pharisees made it look like they could and that made, them, that made them feel quite high and mighty. And as they grew ever more proud, as they grew ever more self-righteous, ever more protective of their system, they grew ever more judgmental. Going so far as to disassociate themselves from anyone they saw as a sinner. And not only did they stay away from sinners, not only did they stay away from sinners, but they also expected everyone who claims to be righteous or who claimed to be righteous or to claim to be a rabbi, they expected those also to imitate them and stay away from sinners, to avoid contact with sinners, especially men like Matthew. But Jesus, as he reveals oh so many times throughout the Gospels, cares nothing for societal standards and expectations when they hinder his mission to seek and to save the lost. His mission to call lost sinners to himself for forgiveness and salvation took precedence and priority over all societal conventions. In Jesus, we see a much-needed alternative to the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We see a much-needed alternative to the refusal of the Pharisees to extend compassion and mercy to sinners. Jesus our meek, lowly, compassionate, graceful, truthful Lord and Savior attracted to himself and held the attention of the ignored sinner. How different Jesus was from the Pharisees. 
How different Jesus was of the Pharisees in his own day and how different Jesus is from those of us in, who, in our own day who are very much like the Pharisees. Who repel sinners, not with the gospel, but with our bravado. Who judge and condemn sinners by our disposition towards them, our obvious anger with them, and our judgment of them. Jesus is our example. And he spent time with sinners, eating with them, reclining with them, extending compassion to them, all the while never condoning their sin, never permitting, never accepting, never encouraging their sin. Jesus was not overtaken by or infected with the sickness that he came to heal. See, there are times when we can be so easily overtaken by sin. We so easily respond to the sinful ways of others by sinning ourselves. We can either do that by imitating and encouraging and accepting their sin or becoming a graceless, judgmental, condemning Pharisee ourselves. There are two ditches that we tend to fall into here. As Christians, we can get so caught up in all of these things, in the culture wars of our day, on the, on the issues that we're all facing, and we can start to see each other as enemies, and we can start looking at it, the world and saying, look at all those buffoons, look at all those morons, and we start to pull back and simply pronounce judgment upon the world. We're not here to pronounce judgment on the world. We're here to bring the message of the gospel to the world. We can see everyone out in the world who sees things differently than ourselves as enemies, obstacles, morons, and idiots. And you know what's funny about this? This is, this is how crazy we can get as humans that sometimes we even convince ourselves and justify that our lack of compassion for sinners is somehow us being a heroic person. Look at me standing for the truth here. All those dirty sinners out there, they don't know. You're no hero. If you have no compassion for sinners, if you are not like your Savior, you are not a hero. The great English pastor J.C. Ryle noted a similar tendency among the Christians in his own day when he wrote this. The vast majority of professing Christians, whether rich or poor, whether churchmen or dissenters, so just to pause there, churchmen and dissenters were factions within the English church in that day, those who wanted to stay with, conserv- with Anglicanism and those who wanted to break off. <clears throat> Whether rich or poor, churchmen or dissenters, they seem possessed with a devil of detestable selfishness and know not the luxury of doing good. They can argue by the hour about baptism and the Lord's Supper and the forms of worship and the union of church and state and other such like dry bone questions. So, end quote for a second. Again, this J.C. Ryle is saying here that there's so many professing Christians who can spend long hours arguing and squabbling and wrangling and debating and judging each other over in-house squabbles and doctrinal positions on such matters. All the while, they feel like they're doing something valiant and brave. And J.C. Ryle continues, but all this time, they seem to care nothing for their neighbors. The plain practical point, whether they love their neighbor as the Samaritan loved the traveler in the parable and can spare any time and trouble to do him good is a point they never touch with their fingers. Meaning, 
get, we get all caught up in the doctrinal issues and judging and condemning one another, but never is the discussion about how we better take care of sinners. How we better show compassion to sinners. That's not a debate that we wrangle over. In too many English parishes, said J.C. Ryle, both in town and country, true love seems almost dead. Both in church and chapel, and a wretched party spirit and controversy seem to be the only fruits that Christianity appears able to produce. This is what happened to the Pharisees. They argued and they touched upon and they wrangled over all sorts of minute and fine um, points of religion. They judged how much, there, how much are they going to give? How strenuously do I strain my, my dill and my mint and my cumin? But they never lifted a finger of compassion or incompassion and mercy to their neighbors. They never lifted their finger to help the sinners in need of help around them, but instead spent their time condemning and judging. So I want to ask, who do you most identify with in this narrative? Do you identify with the Pharisees engaged in meticulous arguments while avoiding sinners like the plague? Instead, judging and condemning them in anger, whether with your circle of friends or uh, on your computer, Facebook, or whatever? Or are you like Jesus who reclined with those same sinners that the Pharisees ignored? And what would you think and how would you respond to see pastors and Christian leaders and brothers and sisters dining with prostitutes and homosexuals and those caught up in the web of transgenderism and drug dealers and drug addicts and murderers and any other number of grievous sins against the Lord? What about sitting with those who, heaven forbid, are on the opposite end of the political spectrum? Where's the compassion? Do you respond like the Pharisee or do you respond like your Lord? To the Pharisees, high and mighty, the I'm always right and you're always wrong, the whoever disagrees with me is an idiot type, the Pharisees who thought, well, God must surely love me, but not you, the Pharisees who love to condemn everyone around them, they remind me a lot of many professing Christians in our own day who seem to forget that God didn't send his son the first time, according to Jesus in John 3.17, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world's already condemned. And so while we must tell the world of its existing condemnation, we do not do it so that we can sit over the world in pride. We do so in hopes that lost sinners might turn to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. But the Pharisees, unconcerned about the state and plight of poor sinners, respond as Pharisees always respond to sinners with condemnation and self-pride. And these Pharisees, they hated tax collectors, and they could not for the life of them understand why Jesus would, not, would dine not with one, but with a whole crowd of them in this house. And so they ask in, in verse 11, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In what can only be described as the way of the coward, 
You see, the Pharisees don't actually approach Jesus. You see that, right? They get bolder later on, but here they don't actually approach Jesus with their question. They try to backdoor him through his disciples. And the verb here for uh, um, they said to his disciples isn't just a one-time ask. The verb indicates that they kept on asking. They kept on going to the, why is your your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Hey, 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 hey. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Hey, you, 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 why why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? They just kept doing it. Perhaps they were trying to turn the disciples away from Jesus, maybe. But most likely they were trying to backdoor him. In essence, they went to the disciples and they said, hey, you know, people are talking. Some people are saying. People are asking. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now let me just say this as an aside. This is a most disconcerting practice. When people come to you with a, people are saying. You need to know something. People are saying An encouragement to each and every one of you is never be the back door through which people who lack the courage to speak for themselves use to get their message to others. Tell the people to go say it themselves. And if you do decide to be the back door through whom the message is passed, make sure you tell the people that you will out every single one of them. There is no secrecy here the people speaking will be revealed. Guess what? That'll stop this pretty, that would stop that pretty quick. Eventually, they will speak, these Pharisees, don't do what the Pharisees started out doing. See, eventually, even the Pharisees got it, and they went directly to Jesus. But here, they sought a backdoor route for their message. And in their question, the Pharisees found fault in Christ's association with sinners. Why? Because they never sat and dined with sinners. Because they wouldn't eat with such sinners. It was assumed that Jesus shouldn't either. They wanted him to be more like them. They wanted Jesus to fit the mold of the religious teacher that they had crafted. The type of religious teacher who simply avoids tax collectors and sinners. And so they pressed the disciples for an answer. Doesn't your teacher realize that Holy people just don't spend time associating with sinners like that. And I can imagine Matthew hearing the Pharisees say that, and in his mind, he's just thinking, I I am glad he talks to tax collectors and sinners. If he didn't talk to tax collectors and sinners, if he didn't call tax collectors and sinners to himself, I'd still be sick and lost I'd be sitting behind that tax booth still alienated from God right now. I am so glad he is not like you Pharisees who push people further away from God, alienating them from the Lord. No, I love Jesus. The compassionate and merciful Lord who comes to speak truth with compassion so sinners flock to hear him. But the the question that the Pharisees asked did indeed make it to the ears of Jesus. You see that in verse 12. It says, When he heard their question, he replied, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, those who assume their health don't go to a doctor. Or, if you're a man, you don't go to a doctor. 
<laughs> Men, go to the doctor. But on a spiritual level, these Pharisees assumed that they were spiritually healthy and personally righteous. And in their spiritual health and personal righteousness, they refused to mingle with and associate with sinners. See, the sinners are the ones who understand their sickness. And instead of the Pharisees patiently working with and teaching the people the ways of the Lord, the Pharisees turned themselves into an exclusive club. The self-righteous club, maybe you can call it. And only those who measured up to their standards were in. And everyone who couldn't, they were on the outs. And this group eventually became a club of guys who stood around condemning each other while patting, or condemning everyone else, but patting each other on the back. Jesus had no time for such things. In fact, he saved his harshest and severest criticisms and rebukes for these proud, arrogant Pharisees. And he revealed many times, in the clearest of manners, their status as sinners. You might think you're righteous, Pharisees, but you are sinners. He revealed their hypocrisy, which is something they hated. See, Jesus didn't come to earth to stand in a circle with Pharisees and look down on sinners. No, Jesus came as a doctor who works among the sick to get them well, to prescribe for them the medication that will save their lives and their souls. Jesus, the great physician, works among sinners, calling them to faith and repentance. He shows them the gate, shows them the way, reveals to them the truth, shows them the life by which they, even the greatest of sinners, can be forgiven. Now notice, too, Jesus called the sick sinner just that, a sick sinner. See, in our day, sometimes people don't like using those terminologies, right? You don't like to, to say those things about people. But Jesus says these, these words and these types of, gives these types of classifications because they're true, and he does so out of compassion. See, one misnomer about Jesus and his mission to lost humanity is that he permitted or permits or encourages or accepts people's sin. He didn't, and he doesn't. Jesus made it clear. He did not come to associate with the sick or with the evil sinner to be like them in their sickness. He associated and ate with tax collectors and sinners with the aim and the goal of seeing them healed and saved by grace through faith in himself. In like manner, we, the people of Christ, must not ever be those who celebrate the sickness of the sinner. We must never be the ones who contract the sickness of the sinner. Can you imagine, just put yourself in this position, can you imagine going to a doctor and you're hacking and you're wheezing and you're coughing and you're feeling terrible and that doctor, the one who can tell you how to get better, doesn't prescribe for you the medicine you need to solve the issue but simply puts his nose in your mouth and breathes in all of your germs. Catching your sickness, and then that doctor sits down beside you and starts hacking, wheezing, and coughing, just like you. What would you think of such a doctor? That's exactly what so many professing Christians seem to do when they go out into the world and refuse to apply the soothing medicine of our Savior to the wounds of sinners, who instead adopt and encourage the spread of the sickness. 
Jesus, spending much time with sinners, remained both compassionate and truthful. He never imitated, never permitted, never accepted, encouraged, or condoned sinful conduct. He didn't allow the sickness he came to heal to infect him. He always remained truthful. And at the same time, he never imitated the arrogance of the Pharisees either. Jesus, our great model for mission, our great model for mission in this world, consistently exhibited two things perfectly. A strict commitment to holiness and obedience to the Lord and a magnetic compassion. And he constantly called people to salvation. And this is what James said when he gave a definition of pure and undefiled religion. In James 1.27, we read this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So do you see it? Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction is the arm of compassion. And keeping oneself unstained from the world is the arm of holiness, commitment to holiness. And you always, we always have to be careful not to fall into one of the two ditches because it's very, very, very easy for us to do so. There are many who try to exhibit compassion and go too far be, and become stained by the world. And they give up their holiness. And on the other hand, there are many who keep themselves unstained by the world but possess zero compassion. Jesus practiced both and the people flocked to him as a result. So to these Pharisees lacking in compassion, Jesus looked at them in verse 13 and said, go and learn what this means. See, the Pharisees love to say this to people. And Jesus turned it on them. The Pharisees loved to say to people they thought didn't know as much as they did, go and learn what this means. And Jesus looks at them, treating them like those who need to learn, not as teachers. He treats them as the beginners who haven't yet understood even the basics of the religion that they profess to walk in. And this was a shot to their pride. Go and learn what this means. Go reflect on this because you are wrong, Pharisees. See, the Pharisees and scribes, they prided themselves on their supposed knowledge of Scripture. And Jesus said, nope. Read again, boys. You are actually ignorant of what Scripture teaches. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So here, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. And contextually, Hosea speaks to idolatrous and disobedient Israel, a nation that is is consistently transgressing and sinning against the Lord over and over and over and over and over again. And they think that all they need to do to turn the favor of the Lord back to them is simply perform the rituals set out in Leviticus. Go offer a bull, go offer a lamb, go offer a bird. And when they do that, then everything's good again. So it was a practice of sinning and then going and performing some religious ritual without any heart change. And this Jesus called out as a mockery, as an absurdity, The idea that you can offer sacrifices without true love for the Lord. 
See, religious rituals, no matter how meticulously followed when not accompanied by a heart devoted to the Lord, mean nothing. In like manner, the sins of a heart without compassion are not covered by your mere external ritual. Don't think that we can just treat people like scum and avoid compassion with sinners of the world. Then we can come here, take communion, and the Lord's like, oh, everything's good. It's all good. You perform the ritual. You're all right. Jesus exposed the uselessness of such a religion without mercy and compassion when he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, practice holiness, be compassionate, the two go hand in hand. The Pharisees, they trusted in their meticulous dedication to their religious ritual and their practices, and all the while remained completely devoid of compassion towards sinners. They spent all their time sitting in judgment over and avoiding the very sinners that God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to earth to call. When mercy and compassion for others are lacking, said Hosea, then all the religious formalities you depend on for acceptance by God mean absolutely nothing. God's call on our lives, God's call on my life, God's call on your life is to live one, a life of holiness and a life filled with compassion for and mercy to others. But too often we confuse the issue, right? We think that our rituals are more pleasing to Jesus. But the higher calling, says Jesus, is mercy. Now, Jesus isn't saying to forget sacrifice here. No, he is saying be compassionate and offer sacrifice. Don't think to offer sacrifices without compassion for your fellow human beings. Don't think that because you keep some external set of rules that you have crafted for yourself that God is satisfied or happy with you even though your heart is devoid of compassion. Don't think that because you attend synagogue or you attend church or you give out of your finances or you help with the dishes after halftime or something like that that God is all right with you. If your heart is not filled with compassion for sinners. And we often forget this, right? When people don't live up to or agree with our externals, with our opinions, with our ideas, it's very easy for us to forget compassion and start engaging in war. So go and learn what this means, said Jesus. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, in one sense, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous because there really is no such group as the righteous. Sure, there are those who in their conceit and in their pride and in their vanity assume their righteousness, but such assumptions can only be made by a duplicitous and dishonest heart, one that takes a very light view of their own sin and a very heavy view of everyone else's. The mission of our Lord, the mission of your Lord, was one of mercy. The mission of our Lord was one focused on calling sinners to faith, 
which is exactly what he was engaged in when he entered into this feast filled with tax collectors and sinners. When he went to this feast filled with the worst, most culturally despised and hated peoples, peoples that the religious leaders would never go (coughs) and associate with. This is the mission that Jesus left for us. And it seems more often than not, we get mired in doctrinal squabbles with other Christians, arguing and pounding the table, doing it all on social media and doing it all in people's ears, doing it all in the absence of those that we're actually angry about, which is slander. And all the while thinking that we're performing some godly deed.